this month in October, which is our world mission offering focus and drive. We have a lot of different languages that are spoken in this congregation. In fact, let's just see real quick together. If uh, you speak a language other than English, uh, would you just raise your hand, please? Raise them high. Got a lot of different languages in the building. Rachel, thank you for sharing with us. Uh, American Baptists have a history in the Philippines, and uh, which is where Rachel uh, has family and background. And so the language you heard is from that area. Uh, and so we're Tagalog, and we are really grateful. You'll hear some different readings over the course of this month in other languages as well. Um, it's just one of the strengths and the gifts of our congregation, right? So it's beautiful. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Timothy. Today we're going to be talking about the Bible. Uh, (laughs) Not talking about a specific piece of scripture in the Bible, although we just read one together, but about more comprehensively uh, the scriptures, the text itself. We have been in a set of teachings here on what are like these big ideas of faith. So for instance, we've been uh, in conversation about God, about Jesus Christ, about the Holy Spirit. Those are great places to start. And then the last week we talked about the Trinity. By the way, if you were not here last week when we talked about the Trinity, we had a ton of fun, which you may not think when you think about the Trinity that it's going to be fun. It might be terrifying, but we did. Today, we're going to talk about the Bible. And I have so much to say, um, so we're just going to jump right in together. All right, so if you have a Bible, uh, would you raise it? See them? Let's see what we've got. And we've got a good mixture here of books and then of technology, right? Both of those. So... The Bible here, I've got mine. This is the same one. I have this practice where uh, I try to keep one book, one text with me each Sunday for preaching. And what I do is I mark up pretty crazily whatever the text is for that Sunday. And then when I'm looking through, I can kind of see where we have been studying together. So this is a Bible I've carried with me since I began here as pastor. Um, you heard the reading from Second Timothy. All of us have a certain relationship with this book. And some of us grew up with it kind of like on our bedside or somewhere on a bookshelf. If you grew up in a home where uh, religion was sort of generational for a long time, you might have something that's called like a family Bible. It's really big. It's very ornate and beautiful. It probably has in it births and deaths because Bibles became heirlooms for families and also historical records. Uh, We have a unique relationship with this book that is different, I would say, than most other books in our life. Uh, And when we take just a little bit of time to sort of sit with this text, both as an artifact, as a physical object, as a transmission of history back to us, as something that we've carried with us with a lot of kind of emotional energy, uh, you might think that it's a decently complex relationship we have with this text. And the way that this text arrived to us in 2019 is itself a fraught history. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. Didn't always start out this way, right? And this is not, we should start by saying, this is not a book as much as it is a collection of books, uh, specifically 66 in our version. However, there are other versions. If you grew up Catholic, then you will have something that's sort of that intertestamental literature. We're not going to talk a ton about that. But 66 is the number that typically you would have when you're sitting in here with us. So many books are in there. How did we get to this set of books? Well, let's start just by looking at the way that the scripture has been transmitted down to us over time. So it did not start off written. It did not start off printed for sure. 
And each time we move into a different kind of medium of technology, the ways that we communicate changes, our relationship with this text changes pretty drastically. So, for instance, back in the day, it would have been whoever was sort of the village elder or somebody who had a good sense of memory retention would carry these stories around with them, and then they would tell each other these stories. They sort of start off as like, oh... Maybe in your family, you've got like uncle so-and-so and every Christmas you get together and they tell the stories of uncle so-and-so and what they did and it kind of becomes legend or lore in your family. A lot of these stories were that kind of thing. We had these family members and they used to be in Egypt. And the reason that we are here now in Israel, let me tell you this story. It's, it's just crazy. And then this God came and talked to us on the mountain and gave us these 10 commandments or 10 words. We have these 10 fingers. So we're all sitting around the fire and, you know, one, two, three, four, five. This is oral tradition that they carried around with them. Deuteronomy 6, when it talks about how to teach your family, it talks about telling stories as you're walking around, as you're sitting down in your home. Nobody would have had this bound book of books they would have had the stories that their ancestors carried around or their village elders. And that was all that you could have kind of holding in your working memory at any given point in time. Now, over time, these stories start to take on what we would call like a weighty kind of importance. Such that folks said like, this story isn't just like uncle so-and-so, but this story, it matters for all time. We should probably write this one down, folks. Let's write it down, in fact, in some kind of permanent ink. Maybe we should itch it in a tablet. Maybe we should pass it on, and you'd have scribes, and they would tell the story, and they would write the story down. Now, for a while, these stories would end up in scrolls, because that was the way that ancient folks would collect their writing materials. Scrolls are funny, though, uh, in that they are really expensive to make because they are handmade. And so if you happen to live in like an important city center or village and you have like a synagogue there, religious place of learning, you might have like one, two, five scrolls from what we would call the Old Testament, but that would have been it. And then you sort of travel, if you were somebody who could travel, you might get to hear all of what became known as scripture over time if you happen to land in certain communities that had each of these scrolls. For instance, you remember the story in the New Testament when Jesus is preaching and he pulls out the scroll of Isaiah and he reads, uh, that synagogue had that scroll. That scroll's crazy long, which means they probably had to save up a long time to be able to afford it. Didn't say that they had every single scroll there in that community. Now, at some point in kind of the turn from what we would call before the common era to the common era or BC to AD around the time of Christ, scrolls were giving way to something close to like bound volumes. We would call them codexes at the time. And uh, even in those, you still got this kind of physicality to them. So I don't know if you have any um, clumsiness in your home like I have in mine, but like people spill stuff sometimes. And when you spill liquid on a book, eh, it like runs along the outside, the inside's pretty clean and clear. So even when they would start to bound this stuff, you would often find the most important information was in the seam. Because this was like the most protected if there was a fire, if there was a flood or something. There was this sense that the text is uh, embedded within kind of physicality. Now, I asked a minute ago for everyone to hold up their Bibles. And a lot of you held up paper books, but some of you held up something else. What were you holding up? Cell phones. And on that cell phone is what? A Bible? Like a billion Bibles. Every translation of the Bible. Someone who had a regular paper, uh, page-bound book, hold it up for me if you have that kind. 
Uh, okay, we'll, we'll go to uh, Tim, right in the middle. What translation do you have? Do you know? New King James Version. Uh, somebody hold up their phone. Who got a phone? You got a phone. How many? Tr- what translation are you reading from? The common English. But you could choose any and every one of them. And whenever I open this Bible to read, there happens to be no pop-up ads involved in the reading process. Seriously, each time the text changes forms, our interaction with the text changes too. If scrolls were the dominant medium that you would carry scripture around, then it meant you didn't have one in your home unless you were incredibly rich. It meant you had to go to community centers to read together. You would often be trusting whoever the religious leader was in that space. They were the ones who would be able to hold it, handle it, and then you would get some kind of translation from them. Even for a long time, books were not things that everybody carried around with them because these were all hand done. It turns around the Protestant Reformation that these books, these Bibles start to get printed in languages that people were reading in their daily life. Uh, so like Martin Luther's translation is in German. Our, most of the ones we're reading in here are in English. But even that has a ton of diversity to it. Just carrying this text into our midst carries with it all of this history of transmission. And all of the complications and complexities involved therein. Now, most of the time, um, whenever you are at your house or, or on the way somewhere and you want to learn about or study a text, let's say you're so brave as to study one of the really complicated texts. My guess is one of the first things you might would do is pull up a search bar and then do a quick little search for some little tidbit about that text. Has anybody ever Googled parts of the Bible to get a little bit more knowledge about the Bible? Don't be ashamed. Yeah, me, all the time, every week. Uh, but even that way of, of thinking, it, it, uh, it does something to our handling of the text and our interacting with it. So I just, oh, let's look at a few things that you could Google if you need some answers to the Bible. Um, so you might Google Genesis, first book of the Bible. You might Google evolution because you've been through enough schooling that you think, there's something confusing about the way that Genesis tells this story and the way that science is telling this story. Are they in conversation? Are they in conflict? And then you might Google Texas because you might know that in Texas there's this deep conflict with scientific teaching and a certain kind of biblical literacism. Right? So all of a sudden, if you query this, you will get into some really funky websites. All right, next. You might type in God, genocide, and Joshua. Why would you type those three in? The book of Joshua is what's known as the conquest narratives. It's when the Israelites are moving into the promised land. And there seems to be a lot of stories about the Israelites killing a lot of people. And the way the text tells this story, it's not quite clear what role God has in what becomes this kind of obliteration of cultures. And maybe those are the parts of the Bible that are really strange and troubling to you. So you plug this in, you hit go, and you're presented with a million different answers to this question or maybe you type in paul women in leadership can you feel the lack of neutrality and lack of like stability that the bible is presenting even in these kinds of questions 
Paul, who writes a ton of the New Testament, is working out this early church faith in conversation with Judaism, also deeply embedded in his place and time, is trying to negotiate gender and power and authority. And often, whenever women are told they can or can't do something in religious circles, they Paul is who gets appealed to. Um, if you want to see what every church was arguing about 30 years ago, just type this in your Google search bar, set it to like timestamp the 70s or 80s or 90s, and then just see what happens. Um, you might type in sex, Leviticus, and shrimp. Because all of these things are often brought into the same conversation. The book of Leviticus has a lot to say about bodies. Right, I know. Shellfish becomes one of the prohibited items in the book of Leviticus. And conversations we're having about sexuality today and forever, Leviticus is like a conversation partner. And so often these three things end up showing up together. Already, right, you're feeling... I love this next one. (laughs) Type in Revelation. Type in Area 51. And then just for, for giggles, type in Illuminati. By the way, I feel like if the Illuminati is a thing, they probably have something that listens to all audio from all religious institutions. And as soon as they hear the word Illuminati, they like put you on a watch list. That feels like that's a thing that just happened. I actually typed in Revelation in Area 51. It turns out there are a lot of websites dedicated to working out the relationship between the book of Revelation and Area 51. Who knew? Here's the thing. The Bible has been this book that has been free at different times, has been controlled at different times, has been contingent on the relationships you have in your life and the willingness of those people to be generous with their understandings of the text. Then has been run through institutions, churches or synagogues, and then they control interpretation until all of a sudden you could read this book in your own language, in your own home. But even then you would have a certain amount of lostness because let's be honest, if you read the entire book or books You will get lost. I've talked to so many people who will say, I've been trying to read through the whole Bible and I keep getting stuck at X, Y, or Z. And it's sense of failure can set in that if this is kind of the most important text at the center of your spiritual life, why can't you get through it without being so confused all of the time? What is the version of amen that says, that's how I feel right now too? Just a little bit off-centered. And now you've got these phones and these computers and this search engine and all of the conversations that have ever happened about this text fed in like a fire hose. How do you know what is worth reading? Who is the people that are worth reading with? What interpretations will bring you to life and which interpretations will bring you toward death? You can find everything in anything. This hasn't been the way for all time. In fact, like if you were a Jewish student uh, studying in like a yeshiva, you were not allowed to read the book of Song of Songs until you were much older because that book is super duper racy. But now everybody, in fact, if you're 12 years old in church, you probably are reading that book right now instead of listening to me talk because it's so weird. The Bible, set of books. Let's just real quickly, let's go over the basics because... We all have like our favorite scripture, maybe our favorite book even, but it's sense of kind of the comprehensiveness of all of them together. Let's look at it real quick. So it's split into the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is a lot longer than the New Testament. If you have a paper one, you can see all of this. Let's see where Matthew is. So there's Matthew. Old Testament, New Testament. This is, uh, this is bigger 
this is smaller. This is longer. This is shorter. There's a lot more Old Testament than New Testament. In fact, it breaks down like this in the Bibles we're likely carrying around with us. There are 39 books in the Old Testament. There are 27 books in the New Testament, which works out to 66 in all. Hans, you know this, right? You got it, you got it nailed down. Um, 66 is a curious number because in the Bible numbers mean things and seven carries with this a sense of kind of wholeness or completeness. So what does it mean that even in the way that we kind of combine and hold together all of these books, there is a sort of almost, what is the next thing that's going to be said here that brings this to completion? The end of the book of John, which is the last gospel that tells the story about Jesus, it says in there like, there was more that we could have said here, but we just ran out of ink and we ran out of time. There's just not enough paper to say everything there is to say. So we have this record, but even in its own telling, it says that there's a word after that word. I'm going to break it down by the Old Testament, but you'll notice if you've been here for any length of time that I often don't use the language of even Old Testament. I'll say Hebrew Bible or Hebrew scriptures. Words matter. Old sounds like yesterday and yesterday is just not as cool and flashy as today or tomorrow. And so old feels like not quite as important as new. Um, but also, this text is definitive for other faith communities, particularly Judaism. And so it's good, I think, for us to practice the language of, of Hebrew Bible or Hebrew scriptures because uh, that speaks, I think, to some expansiveness with it. So let's look just for a moment at what we would call the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures. And you know that I love this section of the Bible. Uh, it's often called the Tanakh. Y'all can say that with me, Tanakh. Did everybody cough on their neighbor when you did that? Uh, it's an acronym in Hebrew uh, that stands for Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. So Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Also known as the Pentateuch, which means five. Uh, this is the core text in Judaism. And in many ways, I would say this is a grounding set of books for the entire Bible. Uh, the rest of the Bible is referencing Torah. When Paul in the New Testament talks about the namas or the law, Paul is talking about Torah. And then outside of Torah in the Hebrew scriptures is the Nevi'im, which are the prophets, and then the Ketuvim, which are the writings. So the writings would be like Psalms, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, the wisdom literature. The prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets. In Judaism, these books are, are ordered in a different way because they're telling a different kind of story in their comprehensiveness. At each of the endings in the Jewish renderings of the scriptures, there's a like a not quite finished or just outside the land reality to them. So Deuteronomy ends with them just outside of the land. Uh, each of the books ends with them almost there. Uh, the Tanakh ends with Second Chronicles, which is also a book that's like, they're just not quite home yet. Now, when we reordered these books in our Christian scriptures, we are pointing them toward the revelation of Jesus. And so the minor prophets take us into this promise of a Messiah, and then it kind of launches off into what we call the New Testament. This Old Testament, this Hebrew Bible, this Tanakh, this is Jesus' Bible. Jesus did not happen to have all this. This was surprising to me when I first thought about it, because every time I think about Bible, I think about the whole thing. Uh, I don't know why I would have thought that as Matthew's happening, or Mark is happening, or Luke is happening, they would have had the New Testament with them. 
This section is Jesus's Bible and he knows it quite well. So often when I talk to folks who ask me, like, why do we preach through the Old Testament so much? Two reasons. One, it's just really strange and I love strange things. Two, most of the time pastors avoid it, which means I get to share things with you that you haven't formed, like, settled opinions about. And three, these are the stories Jesus was carrying around with him and telling. It's Paul as well. All of the early church. This was their Bible. But the the Old Testament gives way over time to the New Testament, the second half of our Bible. All right, so let's run through that. But first, let's shake out our heads for just a second, please. In our brains, okay. The New Testament is a collection of books as well. You start with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's a song I won't teach you today that you can memorize all the books of the New Testament to. After the Gospels is uh, the book of Acts, which is a bit of history of how the early church is formed. It's sort of part B or, or uh, the sequel to the book of Luke. After that, we've got Paul's letters. Paul writes a ton of letters to the early church. Then you've got another set of letters. You've got the book of Hebrews, which is a very, very weird book with very advanced Greek. It kind of stands on its own. Maybe you could call it like the wisdom literature of the New Testament. And then you've got the book of Revelation, which almost didn't make it in. Part of the reason it's at the end is in case you need to like cut a little bit off of your Bible, like it just falls right off. Because it's such a, it, it has always been a contested book. How do you... <laughs> Some of you have been in churches, I've been in churches where there is a deep obsession with the book of Revelation. In fact, every time something happens in the Middle East, there are lots of Christians who are devoted to like quickly checking on the interwebs how this new action has something to do with the end times and some grand map that's kind of like this sort of beautiful mind picture happening in the background. Um, Yeah, Revelation, Area 51, and Illuminati. That's basically the whole thing. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these become, and I would say, by the way, that uh, I was telling someone just last week, if you are wanting to read your Bible and you're wanting to read it in kind of a like devotional, very uh, long practice, maybe you've been trying to read the Bible in a year and you just can't do it, I would recommend that you just start in the Gospels and you just read those over and over and over and over again. Maybe read all four every month for an entire year. It will drastically change your relationship with the entire text if you just commit yourself to that practice. Uh, If you're somebody who memorizes scripture, start here and read and read and read and read. Maybe you're wondering why there are four stories about Jesus. It sure would have been nice to just have one. They could have just worked out one and they'd have gotten everything right then. Then there would be less confusion, but there's not. There are four. And... They don't all seem to agree on how each story happened. And they don't all seem to be concerned about the same set of things. Only two of them mention Jesus' birth. The other two don't really seem concerned. The three on the left are known as the synoptic gospels. And the one on the right, John, is this other thing. The synoptics are related to one another in their what we would call transmission history. So, uh... We say that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are kind of written by those people, but that's not exactly right. They're written by the communities that grow out of these people. Uh, so there's like a Markan community. Mark is this guy who knew Jesus, forms a community, the early church around him. Over time, they tell these stories, and then like, we should write down these stories for Mark and all of these people who came before us. And they create a gospel or a story about Jesus that reflects this perspective. Same thing with Luke, same thing with Matthew, 
And then John is way later and way different. We probably think that Matthew and Luke both had a working copy of Mark's gospel. And when they were writing theirs, they were able to sort of lean into the way that Mark told this story and then kind of come at it from a slightly different perspective. It does not mean when there are contradictions that it is a lie or that it is wrong. Anytime we tell a story that has deep meaning to us, we tell it in multiple and varied ways. If you ask me what it was like whenever our children were born, I will tell you a version of that story that is different from the one that Corey would tell when our children were born or than our grandparents would tell or that our best friend would tell. And each of those would have some kind of like tension and friction, but that's because we each had our own experience with this event. If you followed, trusted, leaned into, believed that this Jesus was the Christ or the Messiah, and then that your teacher Messiah was killed and then he rose from the dead, that is the kind of event that explodes into reality and is told in all kinds of ways. How did you see that happen? How did you see that happen? And then we all kind of gather again and tell these stories. So we get four. It is a generous abundance of Jesus. Read it over and over and over again. What happens in the early church, and what we continue to do in our own reading and interpretation, and this is key, is we use the revelation of Jesus as the Christ or as the Messiah. This is the defining event in our tradition. That God has revealed God's purpose, plans, destiny in this one Jesus who we know as the Christ. This is the cosmic event. And then everything else in reality is reoriented around this cosmic event, even and including the reading of their own sacred texts. So Jesus becomes what we would call an interpretive key. If you don't understand what's happening in the book of Leviticus, then you hold up the revelation of Jesus as the Christ and you look back into those stories. It is an incredible way to handle the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures. And it is a gift to us today because it preserves them as scripture. At multiple and various times, early church folks thought that God and those stories are not just strange, but they are off in such a way that we need to let them go. And we just need to start over fresh with this Jesus. And that opinion is tossed to the wayside. And we say, no, we are in a continuity with this God revealed on Sinai as Yahweh. And in fact, we see in this kind of new wholeness what this God is like in Jesus. It's a great way to read. And when you find yourself confused, you might ask the question, what does this text look like in light of Jesus? By the way, I should say right now, um, if at all possible, you should not read alone. We have a sense that we read kind of by ourselves all the time. And it's a one-to-one thing, but that is a brand new invention in history. Most of the rest of history, we would have encountered these texts in community. So that if Warren says, I think that this thing means this, and that thing that you just said is bonkers, then I can say, actually, Warren, that's kind of bonkers. Maybe we should talk about it in this way. Although, if you and I are talking, I'm definitely the one saying the bonkers thing, right? Yeah, not you. Uh, So if you don't have an interpretive community of friends that you trust to wrestle with the text with, you should. If you don't know how to get one, then you should come talk to us because we happen to specialize (laughs) 
in finding communities of interpretation and textual care. Let me tell you a story. I uh, was able to travel to Israel like seven or so years ago um, with the congregation where I was working at the time and then with a reformed synagogue in Dallas. And the head of that synagogue was a um, man named Rabbi David Stearns. And he is uh, brilliant in every way, shape, and form. We were at this place called Zippori, also often known as Sepphoris. It's just outside of Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Um, And it's the site where when the religious persecution happens in kind of like 66 and 70 AD and the second temple falls and the Romans move in and sort of squash all of what's left of Judaism at the time, all of the religious leaders, all of the rabbis, they fled and a lot of them settled in Zippori. And there in Zippori, they founded what is known as like rabbinical Judaism or reform Judaism as we know it today. They saved their religion in this environment. And it's this like crazy beautiful place. Mosaics on the ground that talk about all of these different cultures coming into conversation with one another. But we were at this site and Rabbi Stearns wants to tell us what it means to interpret scripture as a Jew. And it was, it blew my mind. So I just want to tell you this story. Um, it took like 50 people to tell it, but we don't have time to do it in that way. So I'm just going to describe what happened. So uh, there's this big sort of... um kind of like dust, dirt, flat amphitheater area. And we're all standing around and and Rabbi Stern stands in the middle of it. And he says, I need five people. So he takes five of us out of the group. There's like a seven or 80 of us in the room um, or in the air. He takes five and he says, I want you all to stand right here. Uh, And so he puts them in a circle around each other. And uh, he says, okay, I want you five to just, and we actually, we are going to do this. Just the five. We don't need everybody. But can I borrow the three of you? Ted, Emily, and your friend, can y'all come up? And then can I just borrow y'all just for a second? Aw, see, y'all are so generous. Come on. Just stand here. This is going to be the only group that we're going to use as a showing. So y'all just stand right here and kind of like look in toward each other like you're talking to one another. Um, but don't talk to one another right now because it'll be very distracting. But there's this group right here. So he grabs five of us and he puts, a, puts them together. And he says, okay, now this group right here is in conversation with itself. And who are these folks? They're, they're Torah. They're Torah. Yeah. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy stands at the center of interpretive tradition. He puts them in the center of this amphitheater and he says, okay, now y'all have this kind of conversation with each other. So y'all, y'all can actually talk. I don't know what you're going to (laughs) say. Then he takes and he asks for another set of like 20 or 30 folks. And he puts them in this circle right around this group. And so then you've got this other circle of people right here. And he says, okay, I want y'all to talk to each other. And who is that circle? What's the rest of the Hebrew Bible? It's the prophets. It's the wisdom tradition. Because all of those books are referencing Torah. This revelation that happens on Sinai that we now know is the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, and then there's all of this tradition that is built around it. And so then these 20 or so people start to talk to each other. Then he moves another circle out and he grabs a whole nother group of people. And he says, OK, now y'all circle around. So you've got a core, you've got a second ring and you've got a third ring. And the third ring in Judaism are uh, would, what we would call the Talmud and the Mishnah. These are the oral traditions. These are the expounding upon the law. And it's this entire beautiful uh written down interpretive history of Judaism. So then there's this third circle. Okay, then here's what he says. And this is the part that blew my mind. He goes, if I, as a interpreter of scripture, 
want to have a conversation with Genesis chapter 5? I cannot helicopter in and parachute down to Genesis. But what you have to do is you have to walk through these layers of tradition, all of these conversations that are happening. And then finally you make it to the center. There are these rings of interpretation that have been happening across space and time. And each time we come to the text and we type in our phones or we flip open our Bible to a scripture, we are walking through a set of conversations that have been happening for thousands of years. And then here we are at the center. Okay, y'all did a great job. Yeah. I'm telling you, it really, it really made the illustration pop to have y'all standing here. <laughs> when he walked through, Rabbi Stern walked through all of this noise. I mean, it was chaotic, right? There was like a hundred people and they were all jabbering in every direction. And he sort of pierces this group and walks toward Torah. You could feel like sparking in every direction. This energy that the text had created over time. When Jesus is telling his people about what God has shown him, Jesus is walking through these layers of tradition to the core texts, and he's explaining them with fresh eyes. Because of the way we receive our text these days, it can sometimes feel like it just fell out of the sky. Like God just sort of gifted it in final form. And therefore it exists outside of space and time. But this book is highly contingent on the people who have cared for this book over time, who have died for it over time, who struggle to translate it into new languages so that new people can read it over time. It has always been alive. It has always been crackling with this kind of kinetic energy. You sometimes need a hundred people in three circles to make sense of it. One more story. Yeah. Uh, there is one author I would recommend to you. He's written now, I think, three books on the Bible as sacred text. His name is Peter Enns, E-N-N-S. The reason I love him is because he's been fired from jobs before for holding fast to good convictions about the text. Uh, it's always how you know you're on the right track. Because you've been fired by an institution at some point in your life. Don't worry, I got fired when I was like 20 from something. It was a pottery studio. It's out of the way. <laughs> the short story is, I didn't know who my boss was, and I made the wrong person mad. <laughs> Turned out that they were my boss. <laughs> Peter Enns was in school doing uh, doctoral work, and he had a teacher named James Kugel, who is an interpreter of Jewish scripture. And uh, I've read some of Kugel's work. He talks about the interpretive history of the Old Testament. And he especially talks about this extra literature that attaches itself to these formative stories. So like Adam and Eve, we've got Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Um, But that's not all that's given to us from the tradition. You've also got all of these extra writings around, for instance, the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. They bring up all of these kind of extra stories about the snake, extra stories about the fruit. It's this like very strange and wild way to tell the stories. This would involve things like midrash, um, stories that tell the stories in between things. And uh, there's this thing that happens while the Israelites are in the wilderness. 
Do you remember the stories of the Israelites in the wilderness? You have to because you've been coming here for any length of time. You will know these stories. They get food from manna and from quail that just sort of falls out of the sky in this miraculous way. Uh, But it turns out you need more than just manna and quail to survive. You also need some water, right? Do you remember the story of how they get water? Somebody. Yeah, so Moses, their leader, strikes a rock. And then out of this rock pours water. What's the other time? Same thing happens. It's also a rock, except for God tells Moses to just speak to the rock. Moses is like, I've got this stick, this worked last time, so... And then he gets in a little bit of trouble. But it's a rock again. And so the question becomes, this is like decades apart, these two rocks, these two watering stories. They didn't just drink water once every 40 years. So Jewish interpreters said... Uh, it's the same rock. That rock just rolled along with them across the desert. And then when they needed some more water, they would hit it again. So it was like a water fountain on wheels. Why are you laughing? If I told you this story, you'd be like, that's not true. Because the text doesn't say that, John Jay. You can't say things that the text doesn't say. And I would be like, that's, I guess that's true. But... Over time, there grows up this legend that there was this rock that was portable that moved and it followed the people around through the wilderness. I don't know why that's so crazy, though, because they were getting manna and quail from the sky. And that's not a thing that just happens. So maybe there was a rock that rolled. Okay, no big deal. However, uh, Peter ends in class. Google's telling the story. And then then, uh, Dr. Google says, okay, turn your book to Corinthians. And he reads from Paul. And Paul tells this story about when the Israelites were in the desert. He says that there was a rock that followed them around. And then he says the rock was Jesus. Now we just jump to the part about Jesus. Like, oh yes, Jesus was there. And we totally skip over the fact that Paul is just assuming that there's a rolling rock in the wilderness. Because that's part of his interpretive tradition. All of the sudden, for Peter ends, and when I read this story for me too, the Bible became really weird. All of the sudden, the way that I've been taught to read the scripture is it's very safe. It is very methodical. It is often strictly literal. And it is not playful. And yet the way that Paul is reading the text is crazy. He assumes this legendary story of the rolling walk, and then he applies it to Jesus. This feels extravagant. This feels out of bounds. And yet this is the way that the Bible itself is interpreting itself. What this does for me and what it did for Peter is that it just opened everything up. All of the sudden, the way that we have been taught to handle, hold, and interpret the Bible, it's wide open. The language that Rachel read for us from 2 Timothy. Chapter 16, or chapter 3, verse 16. It says, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. The language in the Greek is in front of you. Pasagraphe. 
Theoptonustos, a weird last word. Let me show you what those mean, because inside of those is where I want to leave you today. All scripture is God-breathed. Pas is this language for all. It's this big, expansive word. All, sacred writing. Graphe is this word for writing, and over time it becomes the word for scripture, for sacred texts. All of this is, and then I love this last word, God-breathed. One of the things that Peter ends shows in his own scholarship that I have found to be deeply helpful for how to handle the Bible is that it is, complex isn't just the right word. You'll often hear the language of like, is, do you believe that the Bible is inspired? Yeah, I do, because it says it in, that, that's like how it references itself, that's fine. Um, do you believe that the Bible is inerrant? Oh, no, I do not, because that's never a word that's used in the text about the text without error, judgment, or mixture. Because that's not the Bible we have. The Bible we have is as complicated as we are. It is full of our own mistakes and screw-ups. It is deeply honest about the human condition. Even the greatest king in this book, King David, is presented in all of his complexity and failure. It is a true reckoning of what it means to live on this earth with such fragile bodies and dispositions. It is a deeply human story. And it is also God's story. Interacting with God's people and God's creation. We are dust and dirt and adama. And it says in Genesis that God takes this dirt, this dust, this earth stuff, and breathes into it. And out of that breath is us, is everything, is living and breathing humanity. We are both the stuff of this world and we are also the stuff of heaven. And when I see this scripture right here, I think about the text in the same way. These are stories that we have found deeply meaningful and they tell something true about who we are and who God is. And somehow in our telling these stories over and over again, the breath and the spirit of God comes along our telling and elevates them into something that we would call sacred or holy. And it is this conversation between humanity and God that evidences itself in this book. So then back to the first question, has the last word been said yet? Has God stopped speaking? Or is God still breathing freshness upon the ways that we might read and might interpret about what the text might say for us today? I don't know if you have been watching what's happening all over the world right now, but I've been reading back to the prophets when they talk about what it will feel like when civilizations collapse and when terror reigns. And it says in there that woe to those who are with child because as they move from war to war, they are the most vulnerable. And then I see the images of these folks traveling, leaving their homes into refugee camps, kids in tow. And I think, oh, this story still, it's still alive. Scripture is not static, even though it's, it, it arrives to us in a form that might feel such.
still alive. It still breathes with the Spirit of God. We don't have to be afraid of it. We can handle the Bible with the playfulness of Paul, with the curiosity of a child. This is my invitation to you. Don't shy away from the strange sections, from the parts of the Bible that feel off. But trust that you are reading with tradition and you're reading with Jesus and with Paul and with your neighbor. And that God might say a fresh word. Every Sunday, at least on Sundays, I get to stand up here and I get to share with you this wrestling that I've been doing with our principal text. Praying, seeking a word. I will say that often we do confuse this for the word of God. There are the words of God present in here. But Jesus is the only word of God. Revealing the heart of God in a way that we could understand. And this book testifies to that Jesus' coming, work, death, and resurrection. And illuminates everything in both directions. Friends, it's a gift that we have this with us. And it's the gift that we will continue to explore together. Because it tells the truth about us and tells the truth about God. If you are interested in the struggle, in the play, then you have found a good space to occupy together. And it turns out I'm not the only one who interprets, but you do as well. So open our eyes, our hearts, and our minds to whatever God might tell us today and tomorrow. Would you pray with me? God, we are grateful for those who have nurtured Scripture over the centuries. Who have struggled, even unto death, to keep it alive for new communities. We ask for forgiveness for when we handle it without care. When we leverage it or weaponize it to do harm and not to bring life. Forgive us when we read it without generosity or we read it without the eyes of Christ, but give us your vision that we would see not just the world, but even the stories that we've been telling about you and ourselves through the eyes of Jesus. For the parts of the text that have become atrophied over time from misuse or negligence. Bring them back to life. That you would speak through each and every sentence and clause and phrase and paragraph the deep truths of this world. And in all of this, would you open our hearts to the possibility that you are still with us and still speaking? This is very, very good. So make us good stewards of your text so that we might be able to share it with the world so that it would make your kingdom more evident and apparent. We pray all of this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen.